an unexpected story out of the so-called hot labor summer. Strippers united will never be divided. Binge all four episodes of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union wherever you get your podcasts. Studios. It's not that I crave the sexual politics of those films, but I crave the idea of taking these things as seriously as we take movies about war and superheroes. Hi, everybody. This is Retake. I'm John Horn. Today on the show, all about sex, specifically how women's pleasure or lack of it is portrayed. We explore the erotic 90s with Karina Longworth, host of the Hollywood History Podcast, You Must Remember This. Then, actor and filmmaker Zoe Lister-Jones talks about her new TV series, Slip. She plays a woman named May who is stuck in a relationship that isn't going anywhere until May finds a way to escape. She travels from universe to universe and partner to partner using a fairly unconventional mode of transportation, her orgasms. And something a little less steamy and more family-friendly, putting the super into Super Mario. The new video game movie is breaking all-time box office records. But first... This is the opening theme to Erotic 90s. It's the latest installment of the always fascinating Hollywood history podcast, You Must Remember This. The podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Writer, researcher, and journalist Karina Longworth is the creator and host of the podcast. In it, she dives deep into Hollywood history, exploring everything from the anti-communist blacklist to the influence of Hollywood gossip columnists Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons. Erotic 90s is a continuation of Longworth's Erotic 80s series. Both are about the time period from the 1970s to about the year 2000, when it was normal to see candid and realistic portrayals of sex in the movies. It also asks and seeks to answer, why did that change? I was thinking about why we don't really have movies like this anymore, adult movies about sex in Hollywood that are massive blockbusters with big stars. And... I started thinking about this idea that maybe Eyes Wide Shut was the end of something, and I wanted to work 20 years back from there. So Eyes Wide Shut came out in 99. And it was the end of what? Um, Because there are so many different ways of looking at that movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I was thinking of it as, you know, a huge swing, big budget, um, superstar director, superstar movie stars, a movie that purported to have something like real sex in it featuring real movie stars, or at least that was the gossip about it before anyone saw it. Um, And I just think that when that movie got the reception that it did, which I think is not necessarily the reception it has today, I think it's, um, you know, perceived by many today, including myself as a masterpiece. But when it came out in 1999, it got a lot of dismissive reviews and it just felt like it was out of fashion in 1999. And I think the culture had really kind of moved beyond those things at that time. How does your research process work when you're starting out with an idea for a new season? What does it look like? 
First, I have to do a bunch of research to figure out if there is a podcast there, if there's enough material there for me to tell a story over the course of several parts. And so that usually involves reading any books about the subject or the subjects. And sometimes I will start buying magazines. I collect magazines and especially for the 80s and 90s, they're very useful for the research. And so one of the very first things I did when I began this project was I bought every issue of Playboy from 1980 and I read them cover to cover. <laughs> and... Um, you know, doing something like that kind of gives you a, a snapshot of a moment in time from a very specific perspective. And it can kind of help me find other stories or figure out, you know, what the underlying themes are. Um, and then once I, I've done enough reading and watching of films, I can kind of break it down into episodes. And then every episode gets its own granular treatment where I try to just read everything that's available about that subject. Would you say that you're as interested in Hollywood history as your listeners are? Do you think there's an overlap that as you're diving into these subjects, you are in a way looking at these things as a listener might, that you are one and the same? I think my listeners vary. Some people, you know, get drawn in because of a specific episode and maybe they have one specific area of interest. Others are classic Hollywood completists who know more than I could ever know. And so I kind of, I think I, when I started the podcast, I assumed that everybody just had the exact same base of knowledge that I have. And I very quickly realized that it's, that's not the case. Some people know more than I do. A lot of people have fewer references available to them than I have. And so as I've gone on, and particularly for this season, I feel that I'm explaining things in a way for a listener who's never heard of any of this stuff. Well, I've heard some of this stuff, and I find so much new in every episode that you do. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit Thank about you. this season, and I want to ask about the NC-17 rating. The X rating had preceded it. It's my recollection that the MPAA, which is administered ratings, didn't copyright it, and the adult industry kind of took advantage of that loophole or that mistake. And the MPAA decided to create a new rating called NC-17. And spoiler alert, it was not a huge success. Why did the NPA need to create it and what went wrong when it was introduced? Well, very, well, not very quickly, I would say. Within about five, five or six years after the X rating was created, it seemed like it was a success um, because there were movies like Last Tango in Paris that, and Midnight Cowboy that were being released as X-rated, making a lot of money, getting critical acclaim, and not being seen as pornography. But at that exact same time, Deep Throat also became a massive success, which started this wave of, of feature film pornography that was shown in movie theaters. And so... Those films, if they were submitted to the MPAA, they were given an X rating, but oftentimes they weren't submitted to the MPAA and they were advertised as being first X rated and then double X and then triple X. There was so much confusion in the marketplace that it got to the point where uh, movie theaters were banning X rated films. Newspapers wouldn't show advertising for them because it, it was just the X rating was perceived to be pornography. And so this went on for quite a while, this state of affairs. I mean, really the entirety of the 80s. And I talk in Erotic 80s about some films that were, you know, given an X rating and recut so that they could be released as an R rating. Other films um, weren't sort of weren't going through that process, like Ken Russell's Crimes of Passion um, was kind of cut against his will in order to get the R rating. So it was just basically, it was not a viable thing for Hollywood to be doing. And so they made the change in order to have this viable commercial 
label for movies that were too adult for children, whether that meant sexuality, whether it meant violence. It was, you know, sort of vague what it meant. I mean, the ratings have always been kind of vague in terms of um, what exactly they mean. But the first NC-17 film released was Philip Kaufman's Henry and June. It got sort of mediocre reviews, never played on more than 600 screens, and was considered to be a financial failure. And then after that, the studios were again afraid to release a film with a, an NC-17 rating because they didn't think there were commercial opportunities there. One of the problems with the R rating is that you know if you use the F word more than once or as a verb— you get an automatic R. But with NC-17, it's very gray. And it's very gray in terms of sexuality and violence. There's a lot more room for violence than there is for sexuality. And I think in a way that reflects what's going on in the 90s, this, this the rise of feminism, the rise of sex-positive feminism, and the backlash against it. And it feels like the NC-17 rating is in some ways almost a real-time referendum on where the country is thinking about sex and violence. And how does that play out in terms of certain movies? Right. And I, I mean, I think you see that with a movie like Basic Instinct, which is able to combine both sex and violence and was originally given an NC-17 rating. And Paul Verhoeven, the director, kept making cuts and sending it back to the MPAA. And the MPAA would not tell him specifically what he needed to cut in order to get the R rating. But it was nothing violent. It was all sex. And ultimately, what was cut that got the rating was not the scene in which Michael Douglas arguably rapes Gene Triplehorn. It was part of the scene where he has sex with Sharon Stone's character and appears to be giving her oral sex. That was the thing that that the MPAA couldn't handle, but they could handle the reverse sexual activity. Um, and so I've, I've found very much through studying the films um, that were having these kinds of struggles in the 80s, but especially in the 90s, is that the types of sex are um, that are considered problematic are basically anything that is considered um, not focused on on patriarchal sexuality, not focused on traditional monogamy. So it's a lot of um, gay stuff. It's um, th there's this film Sliver, which is uh, Sharon Stone directed by Philip Noyce, that comes out a couple years later. And that film, all you know, all that was sort of said was that it had very unusual sex scenes, um, and that was why it was given an NC-17. If you watch the film. Um, the woman seems to be in control of, of some of the sex scenes. She's on top, for instance. And so these, it's just very interesting the things that the MPAA deemed aberrant in the 90s. Unusual and aberrant that a woman would be in control <laughs> in the bedroom and that she would have pleasure. Yes, we can't have any of that. You mentioned Basic <laughs> Instinct. Uh, Sharon Stone recently said, I think in the last couple of weeks in a podcast interview, that her role in that film contributed in her way of thinking, to her losing custody of her son, that she suffered a lot of consequences because of that depiction. Michael Douglas, not so much. Um, so it does feel, too, that actors who are female get punished for the roles they play, whereas the men don't. And it certainly happened with Teresa Russell as well. Yeah, I mean, I think with, with Teresa Russell, her career kind of never took off. Um, she never became a Julia Roberts or a Demi Moore, even though she made some great films and gave, I think, great performances. And I, I mean, I do think it might have something to do with being in films like horror, which are um, not the, the title is provocative enough. And then the content of the film is really extreme compared to, for instance, Pretty Woman, which was a film that in its marketing, it suggested, you know, 
core suggested that it was the gritty truth that Pretty Woman was hiding about street prostitution. Touchstone Pictures presents the story of a date. Isn't a date, it's business. That led to a deal. I have a business proposition for you. I'm going to be in town until Sunday. I'd like you to spend the week with me. <laughs> That's becoming a dream come true. Pretty Woman is, to a lot of people, including me, a very problematic movie in terms of what it has to say about prostitution, in terms of what it has to say about male-female relationships, that what every hooker needs is a rich guy like Richard Gere to sweep her off her feet. I'm wondering, when you saw it first and when you think about it today, have your thoughts about the film evolved? And would you agree it's a complicated film to try to process? I think it's complicated, but um, I spend, you know, 40 minutes in my episode on it kind of breaking down why I've never found it to be as problematic as a lot of other people do. And increasingly, as I age, I've come to embrace the film even more, I feel, um, because I understand it as something more than um, makeover montages and something more than consumer porn, although it is those things too. Um, but I think it's a really interesting film about men and women that in a lot of ways is using prostitution as a metaphor, much the way that film romantic comedies of the 1930s would use transactional relationships between men and women as a metaphor. Um, and, you know, the difference is that this is an R-rated movie from 1990, and so it can be more explicit both in language and in what it shows. Um, but I also think Pretty Woman is an example of something that I'm talking about quite a bit in this season, which is that all of these movies have been analyzed in the time they were released and often are still analyzed for what they say about women. And they're so rarely talked about in terms of what they say about men. And when I watched Pretty Woman for the first time in a while, you know, in 2022, um, I was really struck by the Richard Gere character and this idea of, of a man in his 40s who's just lost his father going through all of these things. And the way that the film kind of talks about him, like looking for a new father figure and ha like being at this crossroads, like being a middle-aged person dealing with grief and being at this point where you have an opportunity to change who you are and change your life. And I just don't, like feel like this kind of content like gets completely ignored and talking about Pretty Woman. And in a lot of the movies that I'm talking about from the 90s, I think that we can kind of flip it around and, and see something new about them in focusing on the men. You talked about Eyes Wide Shut as being kind of an end point. Why do you think it was an end point and what happened to the genre after Eyes Wide Shut? Well, to be fair, I'm talking about several different genres over the course of this time because that's what Hollywood was doing. They were making films that dealt with sexuality in many genres, comedies, thrillers, um, romances. But I feel like Eyes Wide Shut is the end of something because it was the last big, very big budget um, auteur film with two very massive stars that was trying to like conjure up this idea that you were going to see famous people have something like real sex. I have seen one or two things in my life, but never, never anything like this. That was this gossip that was in the air throughout the long gestation of that film. Um, and that was something that, you know, I've talked about in Erotic 80s and in other films this the idea of the selling point that you're going to see something some kind of eroticism that's real and when that film you know f f was released and was considered a failure both commercially and artistically 
I just think that that shut a door that had been open for a while. And of course, like there are still movies released with sex in them. There's, you know, there's Ang Lee's Lust Caution, um, Adrian Lyne's Unfaithful come out after this point. But it just feels like Hollywood moves on after Eyes Wide Shut. And, you know, we it's sort of, we get the seeds around that same time. Um, X-Men, I think, is one or two years later. You know, this is really kind of the end of a certain type of adult film and the birth of, of the moment of we're going to make these four quadrant movies that the whole family can go to. And for me, it, the loss is not that I, you know, need to see naked bodies on screen. For me, the loss is that when you take sexuality off the table as a story point, you're basically not making movies about adult relationships anymore. Um, And the thing that makes me frustrated about a lot of these franchise blockbusters is that they're just not really about human beings. That's very true. (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole other conversation. Um, Karina, it was so nice to talk with you. Thanks for sharing your time. Oh, thank you so much. That was Karina Longworth, the host and creator of the podcast, You Must Remember This. Episodes of the current season, Erotic 90s, are out on Tuesdays. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Zoe Lister-Jones on her new TV show, Slip, and the strange experience of directing herself in sex scenes. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. The new show Slip on Roku is for anyone who's ever wondered, what if? Restless inside a marriage that is stuck on pause, the lead character, May, goes on a fantastical journey through parallel universes as she enters new relationships, trying to find her way back to her partner, and perhaps even more important, herself. And yes, she enters each parallel universe through orgasms. Actor and filmmaker Zoe Lister-Jones, who you may know from the comedies Life in Pieces and Whitney and the movie Band-Aid, directed, starred, and created the series. Early in the series, you have a conversation about being married versus being single, and it's certainly one that I've had. I have a friend who's about my age who's been divorced for about as long as I've been married, and I say to her, it must be great to be single, to go out, hook up, have all this fun. And she's like, are you kidding me? Dating is horrible. I wish I had your life. Mm-hmm. And I think you really you really hit that, that this idea, not only that we admire some somebody else's life, but also that that admiration is based in a fantasy that may not be real. Yeah, I mean, the grass is always greener. And I think the show is really an exploration of what happens when you land on the other grass. <laughs> you know, Is it as green as you imagined it to be? Because it's so much easier to covet what someone else has. But I, I also, it's, a, it's such a tricky thing because I, I really encourage people to face also the 
complex realities of a situation that's not working and to have the courage to leave it. And I think May as a character is is really straddling those two places emotionally. And and yeah, it, it's a very human dilemma that I, I hope is universally relatable. This is a story that has sex as a central plot point. And your character is liberated through sex and specifically through orgasms that are let's just say unusual. Um, and that is one of the conceits of the show. How early did that become part of the story and why did it work for you narratively? That was a part of the initial conception of, of the story for me. I love the idea of a story that had female pleasure at its center. Um, it, it's something that I thought about a lot for my whole life. My mom um, is a video artist and and really taught me to look at the media th- through a feminist lens. And, and so I was very aware growing up of the way that women's sexuality was depicted uh, in film and television and um, and the objectification of women in in a lot of um, those pieces through a, a pretty male gaze. So I think it was exciting to me to be exploring these questions um, through the lens of, of female sexuality and, and sexual awakening for a woman in her thirties, which we don't get to see that often. And to have, yeah, to have an orgasm as the centerpiece um, and the sort of mode of transport as she's, as she's, um, traversing <laughs> all of her parallel lives meant that there was no way around really focusing on a woman's sexuality in a way that felt unapologetic and irreverent and and could be funny, but also very sensual. When you're on set as the director and the actor, do you say to yourself, what did I do as a writer that's going to make me have to do this scene now? <laughs> I I did always write it with myself in mind. <laughs> um, and I always wrote it for myself to direct as well. I really love the way that all of those roles are in conversation with each other as a filmmaker. I think it's a really exciting way to work, at least for me. I mean, it's obviously challenging to wear all of those hats, but um, but really thrilling and empowering. And I think especially empowering when directing my own sex scenes, that was an incredibly singular and um, and wild experience. <laughs> but um, of course, yes, yes. When I'm like in a tent with an intimacy coordinator, like crouching on the ground, putting like tape in uncomfortable places. And <laughs> I am like, what did I do? Why did I do this? <laughs> I'm curious what the conversations were with your intimacy coordinator about where you needed to go and how you got there as a performer as opposed to a director? I think because I was both directing and performing, it allowed for a little bit more comfort (laughs) when it came to my sense of safety. Um, For my scene partners, you know, every move was choreographed and um, and consented upon with lawyers involved. It was all, um, you know, really intricately um, executed. And yet you still do want a sense of freedom, right? When you're shooting it because the, se- 
because the orgasm is um, the sort of central set piece of every episode, I also, as a director, wanted to distinguish each each orgasm visually. And so there were a lot of very complicated shots. You know, a lot of the sex scenes or a number of the sex scenes are shot in oneers, like in 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 single shots. And um, so so yeah, their execution was complicated on many levels. But um, but it it was amazing to explore um, in such a safe environment. Let me ask you this last thing. It might be anecdotal. You might not even know. And that is, do you think slip plays differently to women than it does to men? Hmm. I don't know. (laughs) I, uh, it's tricky these days. It's like, I, I don't know how much to lean into a binary in, in those ways in that I do think, there's such a spectrum that I hope that it hits different just based on people's experience outside of their gender. But I also know that gender plays a role in the way that we've been fed information and the way that we've consumed it, especially in the media. So um, I hope that for women, they do feel um, seen um, and I hope that men feel seen too. And I hope that non-binary people feel seen. Uh, but I, but I, I do hope that, um, it, it could unlock something around women's sexuality and women's access to their own sense of sexual pleasure. She's the breadwinner in, in her relationship and, and has a higher libido. And, and so, um, it'll be interesting to see yeah, who that's triggering for. <laughs> but I hope that, like, like I, I did want to create a show that could turn people on. And I hope that it, 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 that that's a way to disarm those who are triggered. <laughs> I love the series and I really admire your work. Thank you so much. It was so lovely talking to you. It was really a pleasure talking to you. You can stream Slip on the Roku channel starting April 21st. Coming up, the box office news and the latest on a possible Writers Guild strike, all after this. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's through line wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. It's time for my entertainment news chat with Elias 89.3 Morning Edition host Suzanne Watley. Welcome back to Morning Edition, John. Always happy to be with you, Suzanne. So in a couple of weeks, you're going to be heading to the annual convention of movie theater owners in Las Vegas, CinemaCon. And I've heard you describe the gloomy mood at last year's convention as like a reunion of survivors of the Titanic, given, of course, what theater owners had endured over the previous couple of years. Wondering if you think that the 2023 edition of CinemaCon might be a little happier. Um, 
I'm not being glib when I say it really depends on the day because business at the multiplex continues to be a roller coaster. It's up and down. There's twists and turns, stops and starts, and maybe a little dizziness. So maybe it won't be quite like a reunion of Titanic survivors, maybe more akin to a longtime theme park fans who've gotten used to so many whipsaw gyrations because that's the movie business right now. So in the movie business and the theatrical distribution space, what has been the good news? There are two such recent pieces. The first is pretty obvious, the other a bit less so. Let's start with this. But there's one problem. There's a human has a mustache just like you. That is the Super Mario Brothers movie, a film that I know you have secretly seen three times already. Um, It's a family film. I'm sorry. (laughs) Spoiler. It's a family film based on the video game of the same name, and it was released last week by Universal Pictures and its animation studio Illumination, which made the Minions and Despicable Me movies. It grossed more than $146 million in its first three days for the past weekend in domestic theaters. It has already grossed more than $400 million globally, and that is the best animation opening in worldwide box office history. And its domestic opening was $20 million better than a tiny little art film that came out almost a year ago called Top Gun Maverick. So that is a (laughs) stunning opening for Mario Brothers. And this movie, wasn't it the biggest domestic opening of any movie so far this year? Yes, a huge hit. (laughs) Honestly. Uh, Uh, And this second movie that you wanted to mention. It's called Air. It's a movie made by Ben Affleck, and it stars him and Matt Damon. It's about how Nike signed a very young Michael Jordan and created the Air Jordan shoe line. Really good movie. I liked it. Anyway, it's a movie from Amazon, so that means everybody knows that it's going to be on Amazon streaming platform very soon. In fact, the number one basketball shoe fan in the building, who is my retake colleague and overall good guy, Michael Cosentino, told me yesterday that he might wait until it's on Amazon before he sees it rather than go to the theaters. Anyway, Amazon was going to release the film straight to its streaming platform. It tested it. It did incredibly well in theaters, so they opened it in more than 3,500 locations over the past weekend. Now, it didn't come close to Super Mario in terms of box office, but it did gross $20 million over the last weekend, and that's pretty good for a movie that you know you can see on streaming in a couple of weeks. And the bad news is that theaters need movies like Super Mario Brothers every few few weeks, but instead they get them every few months. And there are a lot of big movies coming out this summer, including new Indiana Jones movie, a Mission Impossible film, Guardians of the Galaxy has another movie. And if you're like me, some movies with uh, really cool directors. Greta Gerwig has her Barbie movie. Uh, Christopher Nolan has his Oppenheimer film. But per capita attendance, how often the average American goes to a movie is down 50% over the last 10 years. It was four times a year. 10 years ago now, it's twice. And I don't see that number ever changing back to pre-pandemic levels. On a related topic, we've talked before about negotiations between film and TV producers and the Writers Guild of America. What's the latest? The latest is right now, as we speak, there is a strike authorization vote among the Writers Guild members. It will wrap up early next week. It doesn't it doesn't mean that there's going to be a strike. It does mean that if the Guild cannot find a reasonable contract agreement with the producers, they can call for a strike in just a couple of weeks. The Guild, in an email to its members, said, I'm quoting it now, over 
over the past decade, while our employers have increased their profits by tens of billions, they have embraced business practices that have slashed our compensation and residuals and undermined our working conditions. So I think they're going to authorize the strike, whether or not they go on strike. We don't know for sure, but it feels increasingly likely. Meantime, Hollywood on pins and needles. Thank you, John. My pleasure. Thank you, Suzanne. Thanks for listening to Retake. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino, Monica Bushman, and Taylor Kaufman. The editor is Suzanne Levy, with special thanks this week to Parker McDaniels. Listeners like you help make Retake possible. Please donate now at elias.com forward slash join. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. Hey, it's Brian, the host of How to LA, a podcast that is a love letter to Los Angeles. Independent movie theaters are having a glow up moment. Vidiots and Eagle Rock, amazing. We have our friends at the American Cinematheque. The Vista just reopened. In our new series, Revival House, we'll take you inside these spots and share their history. Because movie history is L.A. history. Listen to Revival House on How to L.A. wherever you listen to podcasts.